0: Hello and welcome to Banking Transform, the top podcast in retail banking. I'm your host, Jim Roos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. Despite the benefits of easy information access, the amount of information that each human has to absorb in it every day is overwhelming, creating a reduction in comprehension and decision quality. The question most people ask is. How do I keep on top of so much information? Those who can absorb and convert the vast amount of data that's available into insights, action, and a point of view about the future will generate success and results beyond their peers. My guest on the Banking Transform podcast is Ross Dawson, Chairman of the Advanced Human Technology Group of Companies. He discusses how you can not only cope with today's information overload, but thrive on it. In his book, Thriving on the Overload, Ross Dawson shows that while the processing of massive amounts of information that we are bombarded with every day can't be broken down into little steps, it is possible to build an information strategy where insights and data in abundance can become a secret weapon for success. So, Ross, before we begin, can you share a little bit about yourself and the journey you have taken to write this new book?
1: I've got a pretty varied background, and I suppose that that's part of what's uh, been the foundation of me being as a futurist. Uh, So I, after studying physics, I started in computing, selling computers for NCR. At the time, it was uh, one of the training grounds for the computers industry and distributed computing. Said, "Okay, I want to learn about money," so I started working for Merrill Lynch in international stockbroking. And then I said, "Okay, I've had enough of this." Went to Tokyo and uh, became a financial journalist, and ended up uh, being getting a serious promotion and was a global director of capital markets for Thomson Financial. Um, so, a few different industries there. Then came back. Uh, left left corporate world, set up my own thing, and the journey there was. In fact, the, the very first thing I did, the very very first offering, was selling to investment banks, training on getting their researchers and traders to be better at dealing with information. That was my very first offering. That was yeah. over twenty five years ago, and. Uh, I was a little ahead of my time, so I found it a bit hard to sell it, though I did get some success. Uh, but that's where I saw the opportunity then, as and we can come back to sort of why that was. But from there, I had a series of books. And so one of the things I would say was, how do you become a futurist? Say so you claim you are, and people either believe you or they don't. So The Credibility was my first book on developing knowledge-based client relationships, which is about... Uh, essentially how knowledge and relationships are intertwined. So I did a lot of work with professional service firms and investment banks, uh, institutional uh, banks. Then went to, my second book was Living Networks around the connected economy, the implications of that. And that was a lot of my credentials as a futurist. And then I set up an organization, Future Exploration Network, which was essentially looking, you know, bringing together best futurists in the world to be able to create value in bigger projects and well, since then have been traveling the world uh, helping leaders to think more effectively about the future. So it's, it's partly that I have always been an file. I have loved information and that, that's part of why back uh, pre-internet I joined Merrill Lynch. I had a screen, I could have the latest information at all times and you know, I think anybody uh, in markets, certainly, is you know that's it's an information world. You know, money is information, and that's the world which you're immersed in, and you probably have some kind of propensity for it. So when I left and started my own service, I had I created this little, you know, little framework where I was thinking, all right, well, how do we create value for organisations? You know, how do how, what's, wh- do we make the difference? And so we can think about organizations, but individuals are what organizations are made of and thinking, well, what are the, you know, of course, we've got technologies, we've got organizational technologies, we've got technologies to to enhance individuals. We've got, you know, the culture of organizations, systems, processes. But the one thing which nobody was paying attention to was the ability of individuals to be better at dealing with information, which was essentially all that they did, in, in all the all the people I saw. So it just seemed like me like this enormous gap. So I did, um, you yeah, know, wrote a book, uh, an article for a Company Director Magazine in ninety seven, you know, called Information Overload: Problem or Opportunity. And as I said, I was you know, at the time I, I did write down a phrase in my notes. I saw thriving on information overload at the time is this idea. And it was one which I always thought I'd come back to. And I suppose <laughs> I'm very glad to have finally come back to it. But it was interesting because when I, my original idea for this proposal was to a uh, book on how to think about and create the future. And my agent said, it's difficult to sell futurist books, but there's one chapter that you have in your proposal called Thriving and Overload. If you make that into a book, you can sell it. But once I've written the Thriving on Overload book, actually what it does, it lays out all the ways in which I think about taking in information to make sense of that for myself and others around how the world is changing. So in a way, it is a guide to how to think effectively about the future. You know, the centerpiece of these powers
0: is the power of purpose. Can you discuss why this is the center of the other four powers and how we can uncover our why? So...
1: We've got a world of information, uh, and our brain, the the brain of humans, is tempted by new information. It's just taken in by novelty. And if we follow the, essentially, the wiring of our brain, we will just endlessly go down these, you know, intriguing or interesting or attracting uh, avenues but ones which don't actually serve us. So we need to start from knowing why. Why it is that we want to deal with information at all. And that comes back in the first point. Well, what's the purpose? What is our purpose for our life? What's our objectives? What are the achievements we want? What's the impact we want to achieve? And that starts to define the information that is relevant to us. Because we live in this world of unlimited information, all of it is distracting and drawing us in in whatever way. So we need to have something that guides us, something at our center, something which tells us that is going to add value to me, and that won't add value to me. So this is something which we need to do consciously so that we can use these as filters and this is firstly in terms of, you know, essentially what, what, what it is, you know, what guides us, but then going into the aspects of our work and our life that are important, thinking through aspects like, well, where do we want to develop our expertise, you know, what will support our ventures, you know, what information do we need to enhance our well-being or those of our loved ones, you know what are the things which we are passionate about? These are some of the things which we need to be thinking about to guide and discern between what is useful and adds value to us and what which is irrelevant or simply just takes us in uh, unnecessary or, or just really destructive directions.
0: So it's really about prioritization. You know, it's really about narrowing your field of vision to what really is going to be impacting you based on what you're trying to be or do or accomplish. You know, it's interesting. The second chapter of your book discusses the power of framing to make sense of all the information that we've been exposed to. You, know, you make a point that nobody frames information the same way. You know, why is that? Why do we frame things differently?
1: Well, I, I, one of my deepest beliefs is that we are all unique. You know, we are all different uh, in terms of our DNA and who we've evolved to be in our environment, how we think. But in the terms of framing, so framing is this idea of you know, information is useless by itself. We need to pull this into frameworks. And these frameworks are the foundations of our knowledge, in fact, they become our knowledge. They're the way in which we put things together to build our understanding. And because our experience has been unique, you know, nobody will see the same, the one thing in exactly the same way. We have built up our experience, we've built up the meaning around the, the things that we see in different ways, maybe slightly different ways, maybe in, in very different ways. And But that is powerful, that is valuable, that is why diversity Diversity in people, cognitive diversity is extraordinarily valuable because there is no one right. There are many ways which collectively can give lead us to a richer, deeper, more useful perspective on the world. So this is where we want to incorporate into our own ways of our own frameworks, You know, not just what we see as most obvious, but try to bring in different perspectives along that way and be open to other perspectives as we build these frameworks that are the lattice that help us to make better decisions, that make us build the, the foundation of our expertise.
0: You know, it's interesting. You, you start with the purpose, and then you get into, you know, framing. and the And the third chapter is the one that it really hit me Really, really deep. Because as you know, I'm a, a collector of information and a disseminator of information. I curate, I try to filter it down so people that follow me don't have to do some of that that framing. And you talk about the the power of filtering. I, I laugh because I have a lot of people that often say, you know, geez, you could take a good hour out of your day if somebody could actually look at your emails and get rid of the ones that weren't pertinent. And and that's filtering in effect. And and while that makes sense. The reason why I can't delegate that is because I never framed things exactly right. And, and you bring up a point in your book where you say, you know, part of this dis- discussion around filtering is filtering out or being able to see the surprises among the bullshit. And it was interesting because that's why I don't usually disseminate or, or let somebody else do my filtering because there may be an email that has absolutely no context to what I do, where it's a completely mis-targeted email. But there's something in it as I'm quickly scanning through it that hits the nerve. And I say, Oh my gosh, I should talk about that in the context of what my industry, the banking industry does. So it's interesting because it's not black and white, but how do you go about filtering and can you actually
1: delegate filtering? So there's uh, personal choices and there's no right way. And, I wouldn't tell you to do things differently the way you're doing them, Jim, because you're a master. And if it works for you, that's that's absolutely fine. And so there are choices. And I think the important thing, though, is that we all understand that there are choices in how we filter, amongst other things, in all of our information practices. And sometimes we can experiment with different ways of filtering. So in the specific instance which you're talking about in terms of uh, email filtering, you would gain some things and you would lose some things if you would de- delegate the uh, part of the filtering. So part of it is yes, things which would be very low uh, signal, very high noise would come off the radar. But in essentially what you're saying is that you know in the vast amount of noise, there's this tiny piece of signal that only you can pick up. And you might find that in other places, but you might find that there. So this is a choice. In a way, and this is it goes, I think part of that point around distinctive cognition, where, yeah, you know, that we all understand the frame of signal and noise. There's lots of noise, and there's a bit of signal. Sometimes the signal is strong. Sometimes the signal is very weak. Sometimes it's very, really buried within there. And if we can be, some of us, yeah, you know, some people are very skilled at being able to discern that piece of signal and the noise which is pertinent and to see where it fits into the frameworks and where it can bring some value. And that's obviously uh, you, Jim. Um, and that's something which you would lose. But I mean, I suppose just as a thesis, you know, if you were to delegate uh, part of your email filtering, there would be some things you'd lose. As you've discussed, you would gain a chunk of time. And that time could be reinvested in scanning some other sources, which might be higher signal ratio, noise ratio, and you could uncover some other gems or perspectives. Because the one thing that is limited is our attention. And we want to allocate our attention to the things which are most likely to bring us the greatest uh, rewards. The the reality is, we can never keep up. It's impossible. Yeah, so we we just have to acknowledge that. We're, We're never going to keep up with things. So we just have to put our attention to what is most likely, to give us the highest rewards, and then be comfortable with that, and not get stressed because we can't consume the entire fire hose.
0: You know that's interesting. You 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 brought it home. You you did a really good job of um, coaching me there. That basically says, yeah, you make it some good nuggets out of your emails, but do the nuggets offset what time I could gain if I didn't see those nuggets. And I think you probably brought me an answer that I hadn't heard before that I'm gonna I'm gonna try out because there's some, you know, if I look at the black and white, and if the gray really doesn't bring that much value, that's a good way to do it. You know, within an organization, Ross, I'm I'm wondering, as I got into your book, there are some people that are gonna dive right into it and really enjoy the the ideas, the process, the the education they can receive and how to take information and cull it down to what's important, what's not important, and and really absorb it and deploy it and use it effectively. Knowing that every organization has all different kinds of people, should organizations have what I'm going to call right now information masters that can help wean out what's important, what's not, what's going to help a person in an organization? Since you could end up losing a lot of time in a day if everybody's going through the same process. Do you see organizations actually have, I'm going to call them, as I said, information masters?
1: There's a, there's the whole new layer of this, which is in terms of the organizational implications. And so this is the, my first book which is focused on individuals and all of my other books have been around organizations. And one of them was around uh, implementing uh, enterprise 2.0 back in 2009 Looking at the web technologies and enterprises and how they could use to become create more effective enterprises, so, so this is something which is really interesting. But in a way, this application of this building individual skills, the organization is something which I am still developing. But the the one of the so there are organizations that have set up. So I one example of this, and taking it from the futurists, um, you know, discipline is uh, environmental scanning. And so as individuals, we need to scan and look for what's going on out there. And there are quite a significant proportion of large organizations that have set up scanning units. And they, you know, looking at those sometimes framed around competitive intelligence, what are our competitors doing, Uh, what are any signals from the marketplace, Uh, but also in terms of, you know, just broader scanning of technological developments and what may go in on the horizon. So what they do, and there is increasing sets of software that are available where they don't just have a small group of people who are doing all the scanning, but delegating that amongst other people inside the organization to identify what may be relevant to the organization, to come in and tag that and store that and start to build more of a database on what is going on. So that's one frame, is that way where we can embed in the organization the capability of, of better filtering. And, and that's, in fact, you know, again, back in the 90s, that was a significant part of my work, was understanding knowledge-based organizations as ones that were sense-making. You know, we have sense-making as an individual, and there's uh, the organization theorist, Carl Weick, uh, had some great uh, work in this space where essentially he was saying, you know, the way to understand organizations is they are sense makers. And organizations, just as humans, scan for information, they come in, they make sense of it, and hopefully they make uh, good decisions the way that uh, individuals do. And I think that analog can be very uh, useful. And in order to be able to build organizations that are better at sense making, we can absolutely frame the information structures of the organization in terms of the internal communication, what are the patterns, what are the roles, uh, and how do, we, how do we do that as ones which enhance organizational performance. And just one, one other perspective to add on that is that of organizational networks, where you know a, our brains are neural networks and organizations are human networks. And so we those organizations that take an explicit network frame around thinking about the organization and the way is value created in those sparks and the interactions and the neurons firing between them. Uh, so one of the things is to define this role of a boundary spanner, somebody that takes the signals in one part of the organization to make sure that those come across and and uh, have the right sparks or interaction with other things happening in other parts of the organization to build that. So I think there's a lot of value in being able to take these principles of individual sense making and flying on overload and overlay that on organization. But there's a lot of, I still a lot of, uh, you know, I suppose refinement in how that actually happens and in making essentially, you know, designing organizations so that they are better at creating value, making better decisions, uh, performing in a world of unlimited information. So
0: getting back to the interaction between the personal networks and, and the corporate networks to a degree, can you discuss, because you, you spend a lot of time in the book talking about either directly or indirectly, the power of personal information networks. Can you describe a little bit about what a personal information network is and, and how powerful that can be if we're looking at the information overload and trying to filter it and frame it and, and put into our purpose.
1: I think one, one of the foundations for uh, you know, mastering information is understanding that the best source of information is usually individuals. So we get distracted by the fact that we have a digital interface and we can type things in and we can see all sorts of things. But if we truly want to understand what's going on, individuals are often the best source. You know, one, I suppose, you know, perspective, you know, which helped me understand that was when I was leading the capital markets team at Thomson Financial. We were reporting and analysing the real-time uh, primary debt capital markets, so we were. What our job was, was information bartering. Essentially, we'd speak to the syndicate desks and would say, I've heard this happening. What have you heard is happening? And there'd be this, based on trust, You know, we'd realize we're not going to, we're going to understand the full context and the value and what the, the degree of confidentiality of information. But we traded information. And boy, as we built trust, they told us more. We, you know, there was more exchange, but we always had to understand the subtleties of what was appropriate in that sharing. But you know, we, you, you know, our our role was to get the information before it went up on the screen, before it was available digitally, because that was part of that flow of of uh, informal conversations. So, in terms of uh, when we think about for anybody saying, "All right, I need to." be better, I need to build my expertise. The first thing is building this network of people who can support you on that journey. And yeah, it's partly saying, well, first of all, what is it that I want to learn more about? And having some definition around that topic, again, that purpose. And who are the people who I already know, who I might want to know, who should be part of that network? But the foundation of it becoming a personal information network as opposed to a bunch of individuals is the value exchange. This is all about exchanging value. In order to get value, you have to give value. Yep. And this becomes part of this interchange, It says, all right, well, here are some people and I want to go to them and ask them some questions. I've got a question. I, there's something I need to understand. Can I send them an email? Can I call them? Can I get them on my podcast? Uh, and but there's this then this uh, way of how do you offer value for that? What is it that you can share? So this designing of the personal information networks is find the people who you can go to, and who can uh, you know support you in developing your expertise or understanding a particular situation although sometimes those who proactively send you the information they know you'll be interested in, and that those are extraordinarily valuable as well, but making that part of a network where you are contributing to those others in various ways as much as you can, uh, and they are contributing to you. And, and Increasingly, we find some of these in private chats on uh, different channels where they're exchanging information. This is not on a public forum the ones where you know, experts or those in a domain are sharing information. And so that's the journey which we all need to, to be on to truly be experts in the space is to have that trusted network where we get value by giving value.
0: You know, it's interesting. I feel very grateful that um, over the last 12, 13 years, I've been working in this area of the business where I've built networks of, of people, as you've mentioned, with uh, consulting companies and such that or release information to us earlier, so that we can write about it and research about it, and then you know they benefit. Their 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 value exchange becomes we write about their research, and in many cases we generate more hits to their site than they can generate themselves. But this also happens through social networks. Um, I know that I have several. Twitter groups are, are people that are like minded, have the same interests that I do, and we share information on an ongoing basis. Hey, I found this in the marketplace, or I found this in the marketplace, and sometimes it's just the ability to to find things. Because so there's, as you've mentioned, there's so much that to manage it, you have to find that which is really valuable versus just another report on the same subject. So, you know, let's take a short break here and l- recognize the sponsor to this podcast. Welcome back to Banking Transform. So today I'm being joined by Ross Dawson, author of the book, Thriving on Overload. We've been discussing how leaders can actually transform all this information we have access to into greater expertise and insight by culling it down, focusing what's important, filtering it, and making sure you're actually able to do something with all the data that's out there. You know, so Ross, the fourth chapter of your book discussed the power of attention or the elimination of distractions. You know, there are so many hours in the day and it's really a matter of prioritizing our attention and how do we focus on what's important. So how do we become not as addicted to information, filling our free time with something other than simply consumption of more information? So as a, what I'm trying to say there is, you know, what happens when we actually do what you've recommended and we find there's time left in the day, how do we avoid just looking for more information?
1: Well, I'm an information addict. So uh, it's, and I think I think it's human. I think it's human to be sucked in by the distractions which we have today. You know, and it's, it's sometimes nice to think back, gosh, remember when we didn't have a smartphone? You know, remember when we could... Uh, when we had some time, we just look around, for example. And so, you know, it's a journey. It's a journey for me. I think it's a journey for all of us. Uh, But I think we can all recognize the extraordinary personal value when we spend time with the things that matter. And we don't spend time with the things that don't matter. And, And actually, often, you know, pull us into, you know, not just Waste our time, but actually destructive to us. So doom scrolling is a real phenomenon, and there you know there are times in the last couple of years when I've I've uh, I've had to go back and look for another update or two on what's happening. Uh, but that is not great for our state right. of mind, and it's um, it's, it's it doesn't helpful. So this is partly around an ongoing journey of, of shifting our behaviours and. I think one of the starting points is simply to be conscious well, in fact that in fact, that is the starting point yeah. is to be conscious about what it is we do and how we do it so at the high level in terms of enhancing our information productivity, how do we best allocate our attention? so I distinguish between six different attention modes, scanning, assimilating, exploring, uh, seeking, deep diving, and regenerating. Mm -hmm. So these are six quite distinct attention modes. And the thing is, it's not as if we either focused or not focused. We have our attention, you know, can go into different degrees of depth and different ways. So when we're scanning for information, that's a particular period of time. Say, all right, I need to scan all my sources to see what's going on out there. So we can say, all right, well, this is something where I will spend a certain period of time. You might say, all right, it's 15 minutes sometime in the morning where I'll scan all my information. And unless you are you know, in uh, very, very high, you know, very time-sensitive domains, you might not have to do that again the same day, or you might just choose to have another scan of the general news in the evening. In terms of assimilating, that's something where you are saying, this is something I've identified as value. It might be something you'll scan, it might be something in a book, and say, all right, I actually should be spending at least half a day, reading articles, digesting them, spending time with a book, whatever. And what happens, I think, is a lot of people, they continue to keep on scanning. They go back to scanning because that's an easy activity and they don't carve out the time to say, I will spend some time with content that I recognize is valuable. I'm gonna sit down, I'm gonna digest them and make sense of that, for example. And in deep diving, you know, is where we, that's the time when we put everything aside, turn off all the notifications, make sure we're not interrupted, and just dive into something to develop some ideas, to, to create some content, to uh, exp- you know, develop our, our expertise in some domain. So these are all different types of attention. Now we can use time boxing, this idea of saying, we will allocate specific periods of time in the day for these activities. And that means you've got enough time for them, but not too much. So you're spending enough time scanning, but not too much. You are spending enough time doing a deep dive. And and critically, that you are spending enough time regenerating. And there's a wealth of science which shows us that if we are continually trying to pay attention, our attention erodes. And to be as productive as possible, to, to be able to pay attention as effectively as possible, we need to spend some time completely away, no information at all, hopefully within nature or some other, you know, completely relaxing environment. And that's what enables us to have our peak attention. So that's the first thing is to be able to put things in time boxes, to spend that amount of time on them, enough, but not too much. And that means that you say, all right, well, I've I've have a good balance of my information activities through the day. I don't need to be doing more because I'm doing what I need. And then I think part of that way of behavior change, of the habit change, is to have things that are compelling to replace picking up your phone and scrolling through social media, if if that's uh, if that's what you find, you find compelling, which a lot of people do, and that could be great book, it could be going for a walk, it could be, um, you know. Picking up a guitar, it could be whatever it is, which is, or, or, you know, some other thing which is productive, saying, All right, well, there's my novel I wanted to write, or there's this book I wanted to develop. It says, Okay, now I've got time because I know that I've done everything else. And I can spend time on things that really matter to me because I have acquitted my information responsibilities. I'm fully across my information and I don't get sucked into the things which are value-destroying for us, as opposed to value-creating.
0: You know, the fifth power out of the five powers is the power of synthesis, which was interesting because you referenced this as the power to take concrete information and learn to process it in new ways. Uh, Can you explain a little bit about this section of your book and how important this is? So
1: synthesis is something I've, I've always believed is the ultimate human capability, And this is this extraordinary ability to take all of this disparate information, all of the things we see, all of the things we experience in our life, and to pull that together to create meaning and understanding and a sense of the whole. So this synthesis is the antithesis of analysis. Now, if you did an MBA or you go to that kind of education, for example, they teach you to analyze ad nauseum. So it's always slice, 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 chop, chop, chop. How do you get things into all of these pieces? Synthesis is the opposite. How do you pull the pieces together to be able to see the whole? And that has always been valuable, but the more complex the world becomes, the more for the challenges we have as leaders in our organizations, the greater the value of the synthesis. And this is something which is not something that happens so much on the conscious mind as the analysis does. This is part of our the role of our subconscious mind. Our the human brain is absolutely extraordinary. It is the most phenomenal thing that we know of in the universe. Absolutely incredible. And a lot of what it can do, its capabilities, are not visible to us. They're happening in the background as the pieces of all of our experience come together so that we have the ability to make decisions in extraordinarily complex situations. So this is something that we can nurture. And I I believe there's a whole array of different things, which I outline in the book. And Mm -hmm. the way in which we can bring together this uh, capability to nurture it to enhance it to bring this into focus and which is far more relevant today in a world of overload than ever before
0: you, you know it's interesting ross because when i read that section of the book i couldn't help but put into a framework of what's going on today with the we're bombarded by information that's framed by others you know, we, we can take a look at cable news. We can look at facts from completely different perspectives and you can get bombarded in one area and see it completely differently than somebody else sees it if they get it from another source with the same concrete facts. And I find myself many times when, especially on political issues, when things don't are, are, are really fired up when they're really hot. I find myself going between all the channels and trying to build a synthesis of what's being said and, and to build my own narrative that's looking at all these things in new ways and trying to filter out what I believe is bullshit and that which is fact. And and there's no one station that has the has the or one network that has the the corner of the marker in that. But it's interesting because it's not just in, in political news and in the news in general. But it's in everything. You're getting perspectives, and you have to really synthesize what's being said and analyze, as you said, both sides of that equation. But it's, but it's it's difficult because you need to build your own frame of reference to see, you know, what's your fact, what's your, you know, what's your perspective within what's being going on in the marketplace right now. So, interesting. The culmination of your book is really the ability to move from a perspective of overload to a perspective of abundance. You know, what are the biggest challenges people face today in being able to really take in data and insight and being able to process What What's the, you know, of all the things you mentioned in your book, what's the hardest for people to pretty much do when there's so much information out there?
1: Hey, well, as you said, you know, this framing of taking it from, overwhelmed to abundance. And I think that that's the starting point, of course, is that, you know, this, rather than seeing it as, well, there's far too much information I'm going to drown, as to saying, well, there is all the information I could possibly want in order to achieve what I want. So I'll take, pick and choose whatever it is that I want from all of this abundance. And that's easy to say. It's obviously not uh, not quite as easy to do partly and be able to sort of pick and choose and also that there is so much tantalizing our brain starts to pull us towards that. So I think the, the the hardest part is overcoming that propensity to be drawn into information. You know, we are, as I said, we are information addicts. That is just a reality, and I, it's. And if you go to Alcoholics Anonymous, you can say, "I'm never going to drink," and you can keep yourself to it. Unfortunately, we can't do that as information addicts because we do need information. Uh, we wouldn't wouldn't get very far without it. So we have to indulge ourselves without uh, taking it too far. So that I think that's one of the, the fundamental challenges, and it is harder and harder as that information is more and more available to be able to have the. Yeah, you know, what is to a significant degree discipline, of to be able to keep ourselves to the information and activities that are enabling and not the ones that are disabling. I think that's the thing. And it is an ongoing journey of behavior change. But the we can assist that in so many ways. And part of that is putting the the structure in place. The first, you know, the first step is being conscious. And and I think to your point earlier, Jim, where you said, uh, you know, you're information master, there's no question. And, and I and everyone else I know can improve, always improve. So information master is not this lofty thing where we all revere and say, let me do everything, absolutely everything you do, because people shouldn't do absolutely everything I do. It's, we have to understand what that ideal is and to move towards that and to be able to continue to improve. Everybody yeah you know, people think about people like Elon Musk and Charlie Munger as uh, as information masters and they are. But I'm sure that there are things that they can do to improve their information habits, the the ways in which they can do things. But wh- wherever we are, it's around saying, well, what are the first what's the easiest thing which I can do which can improve? What are the next things? What's the next thing? Because there's this journey towards becoming better at information because this is the foundation. Of our success, it is the foundation not only of our achievements at work, but to a very large degree, our happiness. Because we can either bring a positive perspective on what we bring in and what we make of that information, or we can get just sucked into thinking, "Oh my God, the world's a horrible place," which is a very easy conclusion to come to if you get sucked into the to the more of. Uh, the uh, the information we're confronted with.
0: You know, it's interesting. You know, I I really appreciate you being on the show today. I, I'm gonna I don't do this often because I it, it, some books are really good, some are are great, some are okay. But you know, I got to hold of this book thanks to Ross, and it's turning from you know thriving on overload. And and you know, Ross touched on it at the end of his discussion here that this is not something that is a secret that only a few people can have information is everywhere. It's accessible to everybody. The ability to actually process that information and the ability to cull it down to what really is most pertinent to you is really a superpower in today's world because so many people can't do it. Um, COVID gave a lot of people the ability to leverage insight to do things completely differently, to transform themselves and go in a completely different direction. And I I will say, you know, this book, is so important today. I think because everybody who's listening to this podcast has a has a penchant for wanting more information. Otherwise, they wouldn't listen to a podcast. And so, anybody who's listening to this podcast, I suggest strongly to get a hold of Ross's book because it really brings the the whole concept of breaking down all the information we have into easier, better parts and building into discipline around learning that I think everybody at almost any age could benefit from but it's a superpower that is available to everybody and especially in a financial institution where everybody seems to be scurrying in every which way it's good to be that person in a meeting that has really synthesized this information and brought it to light and, and is the most informed in the room not because they've captured the most information but they because they've absorbed it so Ross you know, there's a little plug for your book, but I, I really appreciate you being on the show. I look forward to, to seeing how your book does. I know it, I, by the time this podcast comes out, it'll already been introduced, but um, grab it. Um, it's, a, it's a great book. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Jim. Really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to Banking Transformed, the winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. If you enjoy what we're doing, please give our show a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and the research we're doing for the Digital Bank Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Haslidge, audio engineer, Sean Rohl hoffman and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Maroose. Until next time, remember, we all have a choice whether to become overwhelmed by the amount of information that we have access to or to thrive on its abundance.